right, good morning. Happy Sunday to you. You doing well? We are uh, fast approaching the end of October when fall officially begins. Um, I know some of you are forcing the issue and wore jackets today. Uh, it'll be hot when you leave, so hopefully you dressed in layers. That's the way we do it in the Antelope Valley. Um, hey, can you do me a favor? Since there are some folks sitting around you today, maybe you know, maybe you just greeted some, somebody around you and Sharon gave us a minute, um, do me a favor and just look at your neighbor, somebody near you, and just say, who are you? Who are you? Now, if you feel like answering that question, you could, you could answer the question if you need to. Maybe, you, maybe the person that you just asked the question, who are you, is like you're married to that person. Hopefully you already knew the answer to the question, who are you? But now let me ask you the question, who are you? Do you know who you are? Do you have any idea who you are? I saw this quote uh, actually just this morning, and I thought, man, this was good. It was so good that I, I was thinking about this idea, this question. And, uh, and I just stumbled across this quote just this morning. It was, it was so good, I just added it right into my notes. There's a, a guy named Michael Ray. He's a professor at Stanford. And he actually says, in order to deal with the chaos that exists in the world today, you need some grounding. Yes. Right? The world is chaotic. It is a wild place. And in order, in order to deal with it, you need something grounding you. He goes on to say, that grounding best comes from knowing who you are in a rich sense so that as things come so that as things change you know what your resources are and what you can bring to a situation that way you don't have to worry with questions like am i capable of doing this because you already know the answer see the question who are you is a more important question than just what's your name how old are you and what do you do to make some money it's a lot deeper than that. Who are you is the kind of question we have to have an answer to if we want to make it in the world that we live in today. And I know this isn't going to come as a shock to you, but I propose to you that we find our identity in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if we find our identity in the person of Jesus Christ, then maybe further than that, we can begin to find our identity in this chaotic world in what Jesus says about us, in who Jesus says that we are. So over the next couple of weeks, in fact, we're going to talk about this for the next two Sundays. Today and next Sunday, we're going to break down the passage that you just heard Sharon read to us a few moments ago. We're going to be asking the questions, what does it mean for us to be the, the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Today, specifically, we're just going to look at that first part. You know, Jesus gives us these metaphors that are actually an answer to that question, who are you? And if you know who you are, like Michael Ray says, and ultimately like Scripture actually explains to us, if you know who you are in Christ, then you know how to behave in the world that you live in. And everything's going to change tomorrow. Everything's going to change again the next week. And then, you know, the, the elections will happen at the beginning of next month. Everything will change all over again. Then we'll get to this time next year, and everything will change all over again. But Jesus will never change. And who he says we are in his kingdom is also not going to change. So it's important that you know your personal identity. It's also important that we begin to understand our family identity. So in Matthew chapter 5, where our scripture reading comes from today, we actually see Jesus 
right at the beginning of a sermon that's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is probably the most famous sermon ever preached. And at the right at the beginning of it, he's he said several things. We'll look back at the context of this in just a few minutes today. But the part that we're going to focus on today, the part of this message that we're digging into today so we can answer the question, who are you or who am I in the world and in the kingdom, is this metaphor. You are the salt of the earth. So a minute ago, you asked a neighbor, who are you? Would you just look back at that same neighbor and answer the question now? Just tell them, you're the salt of the earth. Just make sure that they know, you are the salt of the earth. Jesus goes on and he says, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, there are at least three things that I want to share with you today that we can learn about ourselves as we dig into this metaphor about what does it mean that Jesus would say that you are the salt of the earth. The first thing I want you to understand about salt today is that salt is precious. Say that word, precious. Salt is precious. Now, you might not think that salt is a very precious thing. And depending on what your doctor thinks about it, salt might be something that you want to stay away from. But salt is actually a historically precious thing. In fact, in Jesus' time, it was a valuable commodity, so much so that for many people, salt was a form of currency. Or maybe you've actually heard the phrase that a person is worth their weight in salt. Uh, in fact, the, in Roman culture, many of the Roman soldiers, the centurions, were paid with salt because it was very valuable in that time. Now, I want you to hear this right at the beginning. As a child of God, you are very precious to God. John 3.16 tells us that God loved the world so much that he sent his only son not just to live a good life, but to die for us. He conquered death and the grave, and he did all of that stuff because God so loves the world so that if we believe in him, we could have eternal life. You are incredibly precious to God. I mean, just breathe that in for a second. Doesn't it feel good to just have a reminder? You're super precious to God. Now, I'm telling you all of that right now because that's not actually what Jesus is saying in this moment. You are precious to God, but that's not the point that Jesus is making here. The point that Jesus is trying to make when he says you are the salt is that he's saying you're supposed to be precious to the world. If you're the salt of the earth, then you need to be precious like salt is to the earth, to, to everybody else. You, are, you matter to God a ton. If that's in doubt, let's talk after church. But you're supposed to also matter to the world. See, God has intended his people to be a blessing to the rest of the world from the very beginning. If you go all the way back to Genesis, we actually find that there's a guy named Abram. And God was setting Abram apart for a very special purpose. And in fact, eventually Abram would have his name changed to Abraham, which is a name that means father of many nations. And he would become an incredibly influential person in human history and certainly in the history of the people of God. But before all of that, Abram's story begins in Genesis 12 when God tells Abram, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who, who treat you with contempt. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. So from the very beginning, God is intended for his people to certainly be blessed because you matter to God. You're very precious to him. But not just to be blessed. You are blessed so that you can be a blessing. You're precious, and your preciousness is meant to be felt by the rest of the world. So wherever Abram was being sent, he was going to be blessed. He was meant to be a blessing, and that is the same for us. God expects us to be a blessing. I'm wondering if just a few minutes into my sermon, I have said that enough, that it's beginning to get somewhere into your brain. You are meant to be a blessing. I know I'm making you talk a lot today, but will you just tell your neighbor, have you got this yet? You are meant to be a blessing. Go ahead and tell them, just in case they haven't heard me say it yet, you're supposed to be a blessing to the world. Now, the history of God's people goes on a little bit, and there was a moment in the history of God's people where they were pulled into something called the Babylonian exile. The kingdom of Babylon came, and they, they captured the people of Israel. And there was this guy named Jeremiah. He was a prophet. And God said to the people of Israel, through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, he, he tells them, this is how I want you to live while you are living in the world. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourself and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give, give daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. He's talking about generational multiplication. He's not just saying start a bank account and put some savings away. He's saying look to be a blessing two generations down. So there's a, there's a thing that happens for a lot of Christians is we kind of just, we accept Jesus and we go, okay, all right, now I'm just going to go to church on Sundays and I'm trying to ignore the world and avoid the world as much as I possibly can, not have anything to do with it because Jesus is coming. Like, have you seen the news? Jesus is definitely coming like tomorrow, right? Like, I mean, there is a, there are a lot of reasons why we think Jesus might be coming back really soon. If you, go, if you wake up tomorrow, it's just going to be, yep, all the more reason why. We're pretty sure he's coming back tomorrow, just for a historical record. I mean, like our grandparents also said that. We don't actually know when Jesus is coming back. But if you look at the news, it sure looks like it. And we have this temptation to kind of silo ourselves off from the world. And God says, no, 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 no. I want you to look generationally down the road to not only how can you be a blessing, but how can you set your family up to put roots in the community that you're in and be a blessing. In fact, God, through Jeremiah, goes on in verse 7. He says, pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. So don't just look to bless your kids and your grandkids, but look to bless the city that I have sent you to live in. And, and I love the phrase that says, the city that I have deported you to. Like Babylon stole these people from their land. And God said, I deported you here. And maybe you feel like some circumstance caused you to live in the Antelope Valley. And God might say, but I deported you here. I put you here. Can you be a blessing not just to your kids, not just to your grandkids, but also to your neighbor? Also to the city of Lancaster, to Palmdale, to whatever city you are living in, to pursue the well-being of the city, the whole area. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. I love that. Set up a blessing for your kids. 
Be a blessing all the way down to your grandchildren. Think generationally in your family line. But you know what? As much as the city that you live in thrives, you will also thrive. You are blessed people. You are precious to God. So go and be precious to the rest of the world. We're, we're like the exiled people of Israel living out here in the redheaded stepchild of California. You're too far north to be the cool part of SoCal. Northern California doesn't really want to have anything to do with us. You have to drive an hour to get anywhere cool. Some of you were like, amen. This is the part of the sermon I agree with the most. <laughs> and yet God said, right here where I planted you. You might feel like an exile. You might feel put out. You might feel like you're politically homeless, socially homeless, maybe even spiritually homeless at times. I'm not even sure where I belong. But God said, where I put you, put roots down. Be a blessing. Don't just be a blessing to your church, but with your people, go be a blessing. I love this story that I heard once about a Christian uh, pastor who lived in Tel Aviv. And this Jewish person came to him, actually a Jewish rabbi came, and he said, you know, I have to tell you something. I really want to hate you, but I can't. What an icebreaker. So this Jewish rabbi says to the Christian pastor, I really want to hate you, but I can't. The Christian pastor responds with the profound and important question, why? Why would you say something like that? That's, what a weird thing. He says, he says, the rabbi tells him, here's why I can't hate you even though I want to, because I see all of the good that you're doing in the community through the soup kitchen you run, for the way you care for the poor, and your love for the people in our city. To be the salt of the earth means doing the work that brings about social good for those that live and work around you. It means living in such a way that your non-Christian neighbors would be sad if you moved out of town. I heard a pastor once, it was Ken Hart actually, we used to be on staff at the Highlands in Palmdale, and he used to ask this question, what would it look like for us to be the kind of church that if we stopped doing church, if we closed down, that the neighborhood would ask us to reopen? What would it look like for us to be the kind of church that if we shut the doors to the Highlands, he would say, that the neighborhood would even notice? And so I'm asking you the same question. What would it look like for Life Church to be the kind of church that if we stopped having service on Sunday, the neighborhood would notice? And I, as the pastor of the church, I could say, I said this to you a couple weeks ago, we're coming into a building season. And so after everything that we've been through over the last several years where a lot of ministry has been about sustaining the body of Christ and saying the right prophetic truth in love to the world and to the church itself, there's been a lot of important work that we've been doing. And I'm not necessarily sure that all of the work that we've been doing would position ourselves right now to say if we didn't have church next Sunday, our neighbors would notice. That's a painful reality, but it is a truth. And I think we've got work to do. I think we as a church have to answer that question. And you, as a resident of the Antelope Valley, have to answer that question for the people that live on either side of you, the people that live on your street. The question, just, just think about it. You don't have to answer the question. You don't have to tell your neighbor. You don't have to talk to anybody right now. But just tell me the name or think of the name of one person that lives on your street just right now. I can think of the guy that lives right next door to me. His name is Mac. 
we're, we're developing a, a friendship. He keeps inviting me over to his house for barbecue. The other day they were watching a movie on the side of their house and, and I just was over there just talking to him for like half an hour while they're watching a movie. They got a fire pit. So I walked back in the house after just talking to Mac for a little while and, uh, and my family was like, why do you smell like smoke? You smell like, a, smell like you just went camping. Oh, I was just talking to Mac. Oh, okay, yeah, we're just talking to Max. So, like, our families now are beginning to get to know each other so much that we can just have a 30-minute conversation just in the front yard while they're watching a movie, doing s'mores with their family and all that. But that didn't always used to be the case. The sad thing is that there are people who lived in that house before Mac. They moved out of town. I knew that they were moving, but I couldn't tell you their names. I remember John and Judy who lived across the street, old couple. They ended up moving out of the house into a retirement community. And even today, I'm struggling to be able to tell you the names of the people that moved into the house across the street from me. So I'm inviting you into a work that I also have to do. Who lives on your street? Are you salt to them? Can they taste that you live on the same street as them? And if you moved out of town, would it make a difference? We've got to think about this. You are the salt of the earth. And God looks at you, he says, you are so special. You are so precious to me. You are so valuable. I gave the life of my own son for you because that's how valuable you are. If you could just see that that alone makes you a blessing. Now go and be a blessing to your neighbor. Make the world a little bit of a better place. To be the salt of the world means we live that way. Now, salt also is a preservative. That's the second thing I want you to know about salt today. Salt is precious, and salt is a preservative. Now, if you want to preserve food today, what do you do? Throw it in the fridge, right? And when Jesus said these words, they didn't have refrigerators that they could just throw their leftover pizza into and save that for lunch tomorrow. In the ancient world, if you wanted to preserve something, you would put salt on your food so that it would be preserved. So when Jesus is telling us, you are the salt of the earth, what we have to understand is that being salt is not just about bringing social good to the world, but there's something of a preservative nature that we are to bring to the world. So what are we preserving? Righteousness, goodness. The way of the kingdom of heaven, the way of Jesus in the world, it's actually up to us to preserve that. We're always, I love it when, uh, in fact, I think the first person I ever heard to, to preach this sermon was uh, Liz Nelson, who's sitting right here on the front row, who preached a sermon about serving in kids' ministry one time and reminded us as, as a church, we are always one generation away from the Word of God, just not being a, a book that anybody reads, one generation away from the church closing. It is important that we are preserving the way of Jesus in the world. Subtle plug, serving kids' ministry. Not so subtle. Blatant plug, serve in kids' ministry. <laughs> Got more amens on the hard part than that one. So Jesus didn't commission us to just uh, make good neighbors who feel comfortable that we live next door. That's the point here. That Jesus doesn't want me to just be buddies with Mac and make everything about his life comfortable. I'm supposed to make Mac's life, my neighbor Mac, I'm supposed to make his life better because I live next door to him. Not necessarily comfortable. It was an interesting moment the day that Mac, we'd been talking for a few months after he moved in. It was an interesting moment the day he found out what I do for a living. I had tried not to tell him for so long. 
all the time. I, mean, I knew what he did for months, and I just didn't tell him. I just wouldn't bring it up in conversation. And then one day we're talking. He goes, Tim, what do you actually do? I was like, yeah, that's a reasonable question. I've been dodging that a little bit. I didn't tell him that, but in the back of my mind, just in a split second, I'm like, I guess we're up against the wall now. I got to tell him. And I said, I'm a pastor. My wife and I pastor a church out here in Lancaster. It was really interesting to have built a relationship with a guy for a few months who just now found out what I do for a living. Because now he's got to wrestle with the fact that I'm a normal person. I could see it. I could see the gears turning. I didn't see that coming, Tim. (laughs) Okay, we're going to have to deal with that one now. Made it a little uncomfortable, right? I'm going to tell you what, Mac has cussed around me a little less since he found out what I do for a living. (laughs) He is. He gets to stay in the neighborhood because he's a Laker fan. Yeah, that's some bad theology, but uh, it, is a good, it is a good point. Yeah. Look, here, here's the point. I actually want Mac to feel a little bit uncomfortable. I don't want him to feel bad. I'm not there to judge him. I want Mac to know that I love him so much, which is why now that he knows that I'm a pastor, I've, it's actually more work for me. Now that he knows I'm a Christian, it's actually more work for me to be the normal person still. And now that, he, now that he knows, now I can go, hey, Mac, I was praying about you. Hey, I was, I was thinking about you the other day. I was just talking to Jesus about you. I've said that to him a couple times. And, and you know, now that he knows, like, I'm a normal person and, and, and I'm not a, just a, a nut job, maybe what I mean by that is now that he knows that I'm a Christian and I don't all just want to talk about politics, Or now that he knows that I'm a Christian and I'll still like him even if he never shows up to church. Right? Now when I say, hey, I was praying, you know what I get back? Oh, thanks, Tim. But I want it to be a little bit uncomfortable. Why? Because I'm trying to push him into the kingdom. Because if all I am is nice to Mac, then I don't know that I'm being salty around Mac. Does that make sense? All right. So I love him. I'm also trying to push him. Okay. So let's come back to the question. What is it exactly that we're trying to preserve? The answer to the question is, uh, is found really by looking back into the context of this scripture. It would be good if we put scripture in context, not just pull it right out of the Bible and just say, well, let's just take what we want to take and ignore the rest. So let's read what Jesus is actually saying here. In Matthew chapter 5, we'll start at, the, at, at verse Three, he, it says he sits down, he begins to talk to the people on the side of a hill. If you were here with us last year, you remember we actually did a whole series on this. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed who are, the, are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Then he goes, 
You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, all those other people that made the world uncomfortable to live in, be like them and you'll be blessed. What is Jesus asking us to preserve? The blessed life. Live like this, because right after he says all of that, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. You are precious, but you are a preservative. It is up to you that the world knows the name of Jesus. It is up to you that the world sees what it looks like to live in honor of Jesus. Just to drive that home a little bit further. I want you to notice that in that list, Jesus never says blessed are the picketers. He never says blessed are the protesters. He never says blessed are those who yell and shout. He never says blessed are those who tell other people they're going to hell. He doesn't say blessed are the judges. He doesn't say any of that. He does say blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the humble, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed, for the, blessed are the merciful. That's a different kind of world. This is what we are invited to preserve. So the blessed life, I would say, is preserved in the world by those who are enjoying the presence of God, living the blessed life. And just so you know, this is what Jesus said, and it's all throughout Scripture. That kind of life will be resisted because we're going to make the world a little uncomfortable when you live like salt in the world. And Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He, says, he, he tells us how to, how to behave, but it also comes with a heads up. He says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. In other words, be salt among people who aren't Christians so that when they slander you as evildoers, why? Because you're going to make the world a little uncomfortable sometimes. You're not a judge. You're not, be, you're not being a jerk. You're not being unloving. But when they slander you as evildoers, in, in other words, you're going to make some people so uncomfortable with the gospel, with living the blessed life in public, with being salt, that they're going to try to come up with something to say about you just to make you look like a crazy person, just to make you look bad. Now, it's happening right now. It's happening in the world right now. As the church, as members of the body of Christ stand up for righteousness and justice in a world that seems to be increasingly dark and chaotic, the social narrative about Christianity is that we are bigoted, closed-minded, arrogant people. Now, we do unfortunately have the ability to be bigoted, closed-minded, and arrogant. But when we're standing up for truth in humility and speaking the truth in love, even then we're being called those things. So let it be true that we're a gift to the world, that we're precious to the world, but that we also stand up and preserve truth, that we speak the truth in love. But Peter is saying, when they come up with all of these kinds of things about you, he says, conduct yourselves honorably. And look at the result. They will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. 
Titus agrees in Titus chapter 2, verse 8, he says, your message is to be sound and beyond reproach. So that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. So Christians, you are a preserving element in the world. Where there is sin, we should absolutely live as a model of righteousness, not a mouthpiece of ridicule. Amen? So to be salt is to simply live in public as Jesus would live if he were living in your body. If he were you. Our loving and righteous presence in the world will act as a preserving agent, then pointing people to the way of living that is best, the way of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. You are precious to God, and you are meant to be a precious gift to the world, making the world around you a better place. And you are meant as the salt of the earth to be a preservative, modeling life with Christ to others so that they might desire the same life that you have. And if that's the kind of work that is going to take you the rest of your life, I can't think of a better job to have. If it takes me the rest of the time that I'm neighbors with the people on my street, to learn about them, for them to learn about me, and for me just to model Jesus, for my family just to model the way of Jesus in front of them, then that would be worth all the time. Amen? Of course, we know this isn't an easy way to live in the world. There's a lot of stuff pulling at our attention. There's a, there's a lot of things that are, that are coming against that and, and making that a hard way of living to be salt, to be a precious preservative in the world. And so there's another element that we have to understand, that we have to consider. And Jesus actually talks about it in this way. When it, it seems a little bit like he's kind of turning the corner, it almost seems like, man, Jesus, I'm not sure if this, this part of this verse makes sense. And yet in this next part of this metaphor, we begin to find an answer for how we, another way that we can actually live as salt. Remember that Jesus says, if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? He's asking that question. And he says, here's, here's what you should do with it. It's no good. Just throw it out, trample it under people's feet. So the third thing that Jesus is inviting us to learn today, if you are the salt of the earth, is we have to learn that salt is meant to be an additive. Salt is an additive. So again, Jesus turns a corner. He goes from instruction on our impact into the world to this apparent warning for us about how salt loses its flavor, which is a really interesting thing to read if you know anything about salt. Now, I'm not asking you to go Google it. I did some research for you this week. But if you did the, the research, you would find out, if you, if you just search the question, how does salt lose its flavor? Do you want to know what the answer is? It doesn't. Left to its own, it doesn't lose its flavor. If you just put salt in your cupboard, in the salt container, in the cupboard, and just leave it there for 10 years, and then you take it out, that salt will still taste like salt. Because salt, on its own, doesn't lose its flavor. And yet Jesus is saying, well, if the salt loses its flavor, you're the salt. If the salt loses its flavor, then you might as well just throw it out. In other words, salt is a pretty... Uh, sustainable substance, self-sustaining even. 
But I, I, again, I did a little digging. I, I didn't just settle for the answer, can salt lose its flavor? No. Okay, so then we really have to figure out what Jesus is saying. The reality is salt actually can lose its flavor. Salt can lose its saltiness. You want to know how? If you add a chemical into it other than salt that has an effect on the chemical nature of the salt and changes it so that it's no longer actually salt. A second way that salt can lose its flavor is if you dilute it so much with water, for example, that you can no longer taste the salt in the water. So two ways that salt can lose its flavor. You dilute it with water. In other words, you flood it out with water so you can't taste it anymore. Or you add something to it that changes its nature. Here's the point. It is incredibly hard for salt to lose its flavor. But it can happen. But in order for salt to lose its flavor, it kind of has to not be salt anymore. Are you, are you picking up what Jesus is laying down? In order for the Christian to lose his or her flavor in the world, you sort of have to behave more like the flood of the world than Jesus. In order for you to lose your Christian flavor in the world, you have to be willing to take other components into your life that do not line up with the chemical nature of what God said about you when he called you a Christian. So what does that mean? It means that we lose our flavor when we take on uh, doctrine, theology, beliefs that do not agree with the Word of God. When you begin to agree with things that the Bible doesn't agree with, you lose your salty flavor. Because you're adding belief into the nature of who God made you to be as a son or daughter of the Most High God. That Jesus said, that's not what I said about you. When you live justifying a sin, you lose your saltiness. Because God said, I, I didn't make you to justify your sin. In fact, Paul says uh, that, that if you habitually and willingly commit sin, knowingly, that oh, I, I'd really wrestle with you calling yourself a Christian. I don't know that you're salty anymore. So be careful what you take in and believe about God. This is why you studying the Word is so very, very important. This is why we want to build a culture here at Life Church where you don't just come on a Sunday and listen to a guy talk in front of you and then say, well, whatever they said on the stage with a microphone while holding a Bible in their hand in front of a pub table has got to be the gospel truth every single time. I'm never going to study it for myself or test it. That's why I love about Life Church. If I ever say something even slightly off, I've got like 15 people in our church who will call or email me or not even let me get out of the building before telling me, hey, did you realize that you said the thing that you said today? And then we can fix it. And over the course of me being a, uh, a senior pastor for a little over a decade, it's happened a, a couple of times. And thank God for the people who read their Bible who come to Life Church. This, this is why it's actually really dangerous for people to say, you know what, I don't need to go be a part of the church community. I'm just going to only do church on the internet. Because as iron sharpens iron, we actually correct our theology. We dig into the word together. We make sure that we are incredibly salty. 
Now, for people who are watching this service online or who are only attending church on the internet only right now, the question for you is, what community are you getting that is making sure that your theology is still sound? I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying it's hard. Right? You need the church. You need each other. You need the word to remain salty. Yes? Now, as salty people, the salt of the earth, notice that Jesus doesn't want us to be so flooded by the things of the world that we lose our flavor. So there's got to be something distinct, set apart, different from, than, from the world that, that is about us. We have to be different so that when we go out into the world, we're the ones making a difference, not the other way around. The problem with many of us, and I've lived my own life like this for a lot of years, in a lot of different ways I have lived like this, where I will come to church on a Sunday or I'll open my Bible in the morning, and then the rest of my day, the rest of the week, I'm just engaging in the things of the world. So what music do you listen to? Does it point you to Jesus? What shows and movies are you watching? What books do you read? What kind of media are you consuming? Are you taking in? Are you listening more to the Word of God, which is true no matter what? Or are you engaging more in the news, which is fickle and driving you to terror and fear? The question is, how flooded is your heart and mind with the things of the world? I, I always know that I, I need to go on a, on a fast. Uh, I need to just cut some things out. I need to do some silence and solitude. I need to practice simplicity in my life. I can always tell if when I'm just going through my day, if just like a secular song comes in my mind before a worship song. Now, that's going to sound super legalistic if you're missing the point that I'm trying to make here. I'm not telling you only listen to worship music. If you watch anything other than The Chosen, you're going to hell. Uh, that's, that's not at all what I'm telling you. I'm asking you, which way are the scales tipped? Right? Because it's really interesting what happens in our brain. If we lose our saltiness because we're so flooded by the things of the world, what's really interesting is that whatever carries more weight is what we decide is true. And if the scales are tipped between media and the things of the world and Scripture, and you get way more media than Scripture, this becomes light in your life. I, I, I mean, not weighty. And so then when a decision comes, you're going to think, well, what would they do in that book that I read? Or what would they do on that podcast that I listened to? Rather than, what would Jesus do if he were in this situation? Now, this is wildly important because if we're meant to flavor the world and we're struggling to make our own decisions without wondering what the world would do or think about what we're about to do, then how can we ever go to our neighbor and salt their life? You are so precious to God. You are meant to be a gift to the world around you. You are meant to preserve the way of Jesus in the world but you cannot do that if you are so consumed with consuming the way of the world. 
Now, just so you know, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm practicing something brand new. Um, just this week, I was just telling my wife about this. I, I stumbled across uh, a, a pattern of somebody who was practicing the discipline of simplicity, and I thought, I'm going to steal that and take that into my life. So if you want to do this with me, that's I invite you to, I'm not making this like a homework assignment or anything, but just so you know, this is where I want your mind to go. How do I, how do I stop myself from being flooded by the things of the world? So I, I took my iPhone, I've got an iPhone, um, and, and I, I took this thing and I just deleted every single app off of it that I don't use every single day or every week. So like I've got a calendar in here because if I don't have a calendar in here, then, uh, then how else will... Uh, I ever show up to any meetings with anybody ever. If you've ever tried to have a meeting with me, you know that what you do is you go to Sharon and you say, hey, can you put this on Tim's calendar? And then her calendar will update my calendar. And then I'll get a little notification on my phone that says when I have to be at a thing. It doesn't mean I don't love you. It's just that's the way my brain works, right? I took all the social media off of this thing. And then I, I put a rule on my life. I'm practicing something called micro-journaling right now. Here's a little game I'm playing with my brain to see if I can repattern the way that I think. Every single time I want to go check social media, I'm going to pick up my phone and go, oh, there's no social media. But now I have a rule. Because I picked up my phone, I have to open up my notes app, and then I have to journal. Why did you pick up your phone just now? And what's going on in your heart and mind? And I'm just going to try this for a little while and see if I can repattern my thinking. The goal is that I don't want to pick this thing up anymore. For anything other than processing what I'm feeling or opening up scripture, I've got a Bible app. I left that one on here. I've got a couple of prayer apps. I left those ones on here. Now, I'm not telling you what you have to do with your phone. I'm not telling you what you have to do with your Instagram account. I'm not telling well, if you have TikTok, just delete that. It's garbage. <laughs> Facebook is a cesspool. You probably don't want to be on that. Instagram's not that great either. Certainly never hit the magnifying glass. <laughs> but why, why do we, <laughs> caught that one. Um, wh- why do we even feel like we need to be on that? Do you realize that there are people who get paid thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to help you get addicted to a device? And Jesus says, if you lose your flavor, you're good just to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And I propose to you, at the risk of over-spiritualizing the Bible, I understand what I just said, at the risk of applying a thing that might, I'm just going to say it, if you attend church on Sunday and wonder why by Thursday you feel like the, the world in your life is just trampling on you, I propose to you that it might be because you've spent a lot of time looking for affirmation in the world and not enough time looking for it in becoming salty by spending time with Jesus. And I'm saying that as a guy who, in order to do this well and not be a hypocrite as I preach it, I had to delete like 30 apps off my phone just so that I could stand here and preach this sermon with a good conscience. I'm one of you. That's what I'm trying to say. We're in this together. Let's be salty. Because I don't want it to be said of Life Church that we would just be thrown out. We are meant to be an additive to the world, not added to by the world. Because the more that that happens, the more we lose our flavor. So the questions that we have to wrestle with here are, what are you taking into your life? 
the flavor of God or the things of the world? We have to ask ourselves questions like, does what you take in add to or dilute the flavor of God's kingdom in your life? I think you know, I I think you know the answer to these kinds of questions. We have to ask questions like, do you give more kingdom flavor than you consume the world's flavor? So practically speaking, how much time do you spend consuming Scripture? And if you're already thinking, well, Tim, I'm not much of a reader, that's fine. You live in the future. They'll read it to you. I mean, if you really want, open up the Bible app, go to the King James Version, go to the book of Revelation, and James Earl Jones, the guy who voiced Darth Vader, will read you the end of the world. If that's not exhilarating, you just don't love the Word of God. Like, that is amazing. Like, they, they've made it so easy for us to consume Scripture and the Word of God. So how much time do you consume Scripture versus how much time do you consume secular media? Like, on my phone, I will get a report by the end of today that tells me how many hours I spent looking at this thing. I want that number to go down. Unless I can look at the app report and say, but I spent time in the Word. I opened, my, I opened my phone to journal what was going on in my life. Is the world adding to you or are you adding Jesus to the world? You are precious. You are a gift of salt, the flavor of the kingdom of heaven. As we think about Applying this, as followers of Jesus, we know that we are meant to be the salt of the earth. And there is hope. If you're feeling discouraged, if you're feeling like I came to beat you up today, I did not. But I just want to share two scriptures with you, then we're going to pray, and we're going to wrap up our time here. Hopefully this will give you some hope. In Romans chapter 12, we're encouraged. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Living like this is worship to Jesus. He goes on in verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And in Philippians, we actually begin to hear an answer. What does this practically look like for us? In Philippians 4, verse 8, we read, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me. And here's the blessing. The God of peace will be with you. When Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, he is inviting you into a simple life. Not overwhelmed by the things of the world. Overwhelming the world with the love and the presence of Jesus. Amen. I want to close this time out just with a word of prayer. I want to pray together with you. 
want to pray a blessing over you. And then we're going to dismiss. We're going to be done with our gathering today. I'm going to invite you as you leave this place to go and find ways to be a blessing. I mean, incredibly practical. Don't forget that Sharon already invited you. We want you to join with us in going and inviting our neighbors to this event that we've got coming up. So you can do that. Then you're going to go out to lunch. How can you be salt at the restaurant that you go to? You're going to go home today. How can you be salt to your neighborhood today? Maybe rather than spending time inside, maybe you go and introduce yourself to a neighbor before you go to bed tonight. And then before you leave this room, I've asked Kristen to go over here to the prayer wall in the back. Marcus is going to go over to the other wall. And if there is anything that you want to talk through, pray about with anybody today, if there's anything going on in your life or you want to respond to this sermon in any way, then go find one of those guys at the back of the room. But for now, let's close this time in prayer. In fact, can I invite you to stand to your feet? We started this, uh, this message today, standing at attention before the Lord. We pray, God, would, would you speak to us and help us to become the salt of the world. And so now in closing, God, we come standing before you again. God, we pray today, help us live the simple life. Help our lives to taste like the kingdom of God, not the world. Help us to love the world by making an impact rather than being so in love with the world that it impacts us. Help us to be a blessing so that as we work in the world, even those outside your kingdom would be thankful for our presence. And as we work to impact the world, we give you all the glory, all of the praise, and all of the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. And friends, I would pray this blessing over you. You are the salt of the earth. May you never lose your flavor. May your simple life add the love of Jesus to every person you encounter. As you flavor the world, may you experience the joy and pleasure of God's love in and through your own life. Amen. Amen.